Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Chris McCormack and today I'm joined by writer and critic based in London and Norwich, Jonathan P. Watts, artist and writer based in Manchester, Lauren Velvick, and writer and publisher Jamie Sutcliffe. Jamie will be discussing Marco Wernerhead and Nathaniel Meller's recent film um, of Bob Park's The R&B Feeling. Lauren Velvick will be discussing the work of Jeanette Thomas. But first, let's begin with Jonathan P. Watt's uh, feature, which is in this month's issue, uh, which looks at how emotional capitalism and labor shapes and sort of governs subjective and intersubjective relations and how artists are working in some way in resistance to this. Um, Jonathan, can we start by talking about how and what led you to this subject in the first place? I know you've been recently in L.A. <laughs> that sounds very glamorous. Um, yeah, I felt like I should give a kind of um, preamble about the, the writing of um, the article. Uh, the kind of hook or the catalyst for me was seeing um, Rachel McLean's uh, work, Feed Me, seen one at the British yeah. Art Show. But um, just to kind of, yeah, just to un- unpack the, the, the process a bit. Um, uh, I was interested in a, f- a few contemporary artists' work uh, in particular that seemed to explore models of uh, therapy or um, consumer research groups. Um, so, for instance, Alice Theobald has this work called They Keep Putting Words in My Mouth, um, where basically uh, there's a kind of empty circle of chairs in a, in a video work, and above that empty sen- uh, circle of chairs is a projected video that shows performers uh, rehearsing, and amongst them is Theobald herself. Yeah. Um, uh Basically, what what you see in in the video work is uh, the performance, that, the rehearsal of the performance that took place earlier. So rehearsal time and performance time are collapsed in this one space of the work. Um, and then overdubbed on the video, Theobald's voice in a kind of searching conversation with a therapist. And she's talking about, or she's reflecting on the process of making the work, how she feels like it went. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I, I kind of was interested in this for the way that the therapeutic space is used for kind of uh kind of unstitching virtuosity um and the therapist's voice in the conversation that Theobald has with the therapist is 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 a kind of conversation almost with the with a kind of director um so they keep putting words in my mouth dissolves a kind of on stage off stage self um and it dissolves this relationship between rehearsal time and performance time yeah, um, it sort of. I mean, it definitely is therapeutic in that uh, you know, if you think about the notion of therapy, which is about afterwardsness, yeah, you know, which is about as we were just discussing earlier, the difference between being live and how we then review it, yeah, and these yeah. two things collapsing. So, in a sense, the the notion of therapy is always working through the sense of what yeah. has gone after. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing was also that was interesting is that like Fearbold's work asks us to kind of to consider like what distinguishes the repetition and structure of a therapy from the repetition and structure of, of performance because they both, in a way, rehearse narrative. They both pause, they both stop, and they, they, they both repeat for, to, to be able to reflect. And so there's this kind of interesting thing about like what the, the passage from like the emotional capture of performance is to like the mental health industry, for instance, that like m- perhaps monetizes symptoms. And, you know, and just to, just to kind of relate it to Lucy Beach and Edward Thomason... Um, you know, Lucy Beecher's uh, most recent work, for instance, um, at the Harris, um, is called um, Me and Mine. And uh, it's a drama that um, that basically um, explores the so-called feminine virtues of, uh, of empathy and relationality around funeral customs. 
and um, and then Edward Beecher's uh, sorry, I beg your Edward pardon. Thomas. Edward Thomason's um, work, for instance, uh, the, the 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 work that he had at Chisenhale Gallery last year, the present tense, it brings together these three stories about an art therapist session with a young boy, um, police officers singing um, about stop and search, and then a woman's attempts at mindfulness. So there was so so Alice Theobald's work, Lucy Beach and Edward Thomason's work, got me kind of thinking about these. These, yeah, there's the, these relations. Yeah, there's, it's, yeah. yeah, it suddenly becomes sort of part of the currency. This idea of how we view and rethink therapy and in today's society. And I think what you're trying to do is position that within a kind of how you how we see it through a kind of global capital flow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about how really how these things are being pinched upon in a way, or how they're being used or manipulated by uh, sort of capitalism really you talk about coca-cola and uh, other kind of the silicon valley and these other sort of yeah uh, you know these sort of monoliths of uh, culture yeah. i suppose yeah well i mean i you know i what should be said here i suppose is that um sarah ahmed who's a professor in race and cultural studies at goldsmiths diagnosed something like that she called the happiness turn in 2008 so this is something that has has been been talked about for a while, mm. but actually, um, William Davies, William Davies' book, um, "The Happiness Industry," has just been published by Versa. And actually, I, you know, I, I came across this book whilst I was in Los Angeles um, over the summer, and you know, I'd, so I'd, I'd had kind of, I'd had these artists in mind here, but then being out in Los Angeles and San Francisco, it's really striking that basically these kind of ideas of new ageism and self-actualization and spirituality and self-fulfillment and happiness are basically like the bedrock of the culture out mm. there. And, you know, I was at a friend's house and I was looking at the whole Earth catalogue, which is edited by Stuart Brand, and I was really kind of struck by, you know, this the, the purpose of the whole Earth catalogue is to, you know, is to enable, yeah. you know, is to kind of offer useful things. You know, and there's a section on self-help books, and it seemed unentirely just seemed like not cynical whatsoever that somehow the purpose of of these were to you know to enable people to to take agency and control over their own mental health and you know <laughs> i like that too of a cynical self-help book well <laughs> and yeah I, I mean i was really struck by it you know but then of course Stuart, you know steve jobs is on record yeah. as saying that you know Stuart brand is is one of his greatest influences and you know I, whilst I was out there, I also went to um, this place called the Esalen Institute in Big Sur. And, uh, you know, Esalen Institute is fascinating because it has this kind of program of visiting professors. Gregory Bateson, for instance, the ecologist, has, you know, is, is, was mm -hmm. a recent professor there. But it has this program where... Um, that's 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 full of pro, uh, that's full of sort of exercises and workshops on meditation and mindfulness and these people that de de deliver these workshops in in Esalen Institute which is a, a hippie resort that was set up in the 60s um these people then go off and have careers you know mm. delivering these sessions in big corporations and you know that that seemed really interesting to me and then you know you know I was I mean, it is interesting how counterculture, necessarily, you know, like from the '60s onwards, has been co-opted as a strategy yeah. to enable the the would-be workforce of today to kind of get on with their lives and feel good about themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is an interesting and probably unexpected arc for many people. I'm guessing from the '60s to know that that was the outcome. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the there was a few pivotal moments whilst I was out there. I was reading Ed Sanders' book about Charles Manson, and this book that he has called The Family. Um, 
you know, he says that Ed's, that Charles Manson was in Esalen Institute just days before um, Sharon Tate's mm-hmm. murder. And it suddenly made me realise that, you know, there's this actually this very violent flip side to the counterculture. Well, you talk about the Johnston and, Massacre as well. And yeah, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. And then and so there was this other book mm. that I was looking at whilst I was out there, David Felton's book called Mindfuckers, mm. um, which basically makes this argument that after the kind of hope for acid revolution, um, that, that actually what was left was a spiritual emptiness and, and that these American institutions had been deconstructed and... Yeah, the spiritual emptiness meant that there was a certain susceptibility to charismatic leaders. And, um, and you know, one of the things that Felton talks about is the way in which uh, later on the kind of mechanisms of corporations became interested in, you know, the, the, the mechanisms of uh, impressionability or, you know, I mean, it sounds a bit sensationalist, but mind control. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, so so that kind of was an eye-opening experience. And then, of course, I you know, you, you asked me about, j- just to kind of talk a bit more about um, the counterculture's relationship to uh, contemporary corporate management. Mm. I came back uh, in July and saw Benedict Drew's show at, at the um, Quad Gallery in Derby. And, um, you know, the, the kind of the, the centrepiece, if you like, of this show is, is Branson, Richard Branson, um, and uh, you know, and and Ben Drew's whole kind of show really is a is a kind of um, a bile against yeah. Branson and the ways in which he le- he seemed to have kind of learnt the lessons of the counterculture, and then and then uh, incorporated that in his you know his business and his empire. So um, it's this idea of a kind of a hi- he he kind of exemplifies a kind of hippie CEO, if you like. Yeah, I mean the guile by which he's managed to construct this perception or persona mm. of the kind of would-be do-gooder, which actually is this, underneath all that is this very vicious and quite strategic uh, sort of playing out. You know, the, this, the, I know the trains, the network, the train company that he <laughs> runs is particularly <laughs> mired in particular, you know. Uh, various kind of dodgy doings but uh, yeah, yeah you know it is interesting the sort of how that branding or the persona of something soft and fluffy actually underneath it is actually much more sort of uh menacing and mean yeah, i suppose that's yeah. kind of it's what's interesting or play you know that dichotomy perhaps yeah i mean i you know i think that um just to just to you know i think the other the other thing the other thing that really i mean so my copy was late for this piece right and yeah. uh and uh, but 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 the, the important thing, I suppose, the catalyst was seeing Rachel McLean's work at the British Art Show, yeah. and um, you know this this is kind of an interesting work because you know it's this vision of a, a dystopian vision of a city basically where there's this consensual surveillance um, that's based on visual and consumptive uh, evidence, and this monstrous corporate director of this. Uh, corporation called smile inc basically uses the c- consumptive behavior to to quantify and optimize and sell happiness and productivity to its youth and um you know this kind of uh i think what's so amazing about this work really is that you know i went into it and i spent an hour in there mm-hmm. and 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 uh it i it somehow um uh, it didn't make me happy when I left. Let's put it like that. And yeah. you know, she she somehow puts her finger on, um, I think, something that most of us, you know, are okay with. That you know, we most of us are plugged into social media networks. Um, most of us hit the like button. Most of us swipe left or right. 
Um, and she she has this way of um, demonstra- demonstrating the ways in which you know these consumptive patterns of behaviour are reducible to a smiley emoticon or a you know an unhappy emoticon. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, eventually the city falls into ruin. Mm. Um, but you know, I suppose that the the thing about the emoticon is that it shorthands, um, it kind of blunts a kind of emotional range, if you like, because it reduces it to a kind of byrony, but a, a byrony, binary. Yeah, well, certainly it's restricted. There's not you, your options. Let's say, let's even say that the idea that we have options, but you know, the options are already kind of whittled down a little bit in advance. So you kind of almost having to perform like a game in a way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whether you choose left, left or right, you know, no one's going to think any other option because those options are already been handed to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, but I, I mean, I think that like, I, what I would say is that Rachel's work, I guess, is a kind of plea for complexity. Mm. You know. Um, yeah, I watched and- Over the Rainbow or a section of it yesterday, and I was sort of. I mean, it is interesting the sort of grotesque quality by which you know she has all these characters in various costumes, like Kerber outfits, you know, with. Um, twinkling lights through their hair and blue faces with rainbows painted on it. Yeah. And it is this sort of saccharine uh, experience sort of exaggerated out to, you know, in manifest and manifold ways, you know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, then yeah. within that, uh, she also had them perform various um, ready-made speech. So at one point, they're sort of lip-syncing to TV shows. And, you know, so it's this idea, again, of something that's, yeah, uh, where happiness is already a blueprint that's been etched out in advance of you experiencing it. Mm, um, mm, so it has mm. that, I think what you say, this sort of twinge of melancholy. Yeah, but I mean, I think the operative aesthetic is um, cuteness. Mm. I think that's, you know, I like, you know, somebody, I think in the review I wrote that I'd been killed by cuteness and um, somebody tweeted to me, um, you know, was that a good thing that you'd been killed by cuteness? Um, and, you know, I, th- there's this theorist, Cyan Ngai, um who talks about uh, cuteness as being a kind of pastoral aesthetic that's mm-hmm. sort of, there's a harmlessness about it. Um, but, you know, I would say, yes, I, I, I mean, I was killed by cuteness. But actually, you know, I, I think I would defy anybody um, to, to, to watch that work and, and leave feeling happy after it. But that, that's kind of interesting in a way, because, uh, you know, it poses a question about Maclean's work and art in general. You know, while commenting on contemporary happiness, does it contribute to our happiness as an artwork? Um, and I, you know, I don't know that contemporary art actually has a moral obligation to make us happy. I don't think art make, has a moral obligation to make us happy. Um, I think what's interesting, perhaps, is that contemporary art can disrupt those mechanisms or simplifications. Yeah, and certainly reflect them or show them as what they are. I think that's what Rachel's very good at. In a way, the the lens is that what she's viewing them through is the sort of infantilism of society. You know, it is the chai latte and the pumpkin spice chai latte. (laughs) You know, uh, it's that sort of sugary, sickly uh, effect of society, and that it's like how do you argue against something that's ostensibly always nice? You yeah, know, how yeah. do you argue against niceness? Yeah, I yeah. find it, that's it's just it, suffocating. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, I suppose, um, yeah. I mean, I you know, I, I I was thinking about this earlier, like, you know, that there is a usefulness in negative negativity, obviously, mm. and you know, just because something's boring, 
there can be a productive boringness. Mm. You know, so so somehow those that just to remember those things can work to counter those things about niceness or you know. Um, I mean, you know, I I don't know also that I would claim that like I don't know. I was just thinking about whether there was like a hierarchy of happiness. You know, whether Benedict Drew's work, you know, if it makes us happy, maybe that whether that's a more legitimate feeling of happiness than say Pharrell Williams's song "Happy." Um, which is an interesting thing to yeah, and of course the flip the flip coin of all this necessity for happiness is that you know depression and suicide rates or you know I mean by comparison society is filled with these things you know mm. uh, you can think about asylums in this country alone they've been closed down uh, mental health care is closed down uh, you know provision of um, tablets and um, you know pros from everything from Prozac to everything else you know they've now ready made count you know sort of solutions. Mm. Uh, where by in the past patients would you know spend weeks or months in an asylum now we just give them a day bed a few pain a few, yeah. p- a few pills and they're off on their own well you know i mean i think you know i think you know mindfulness is being rolled out by the nhs and um you know you can read online you know there's there's many articles about this mm. about how you know uh, just stopping on a daily basis and practicing mindfulness can be just as effective as being prescribed mm. antidepressants. Which I think um, in Edward Thomason's work, you know, where they do the sing song, you know, that's that really encapsulates, I think, a part of that feeling of both the collective or the collective singing voice mm. and also the sense of the individual within that. You know, you get this sort of choral yeah. element. Yeah. Well, I suppose like the the the, the chorus. I guess dramatizes a relationship between harmony mm. and disharmony. You know, it's yes. a kind of a, a symbol of of that. Um, I mean, you mentioned the Coca Cola advert earlier, and you know, it's the Coca Cola advert with the hashtag yeah. choose, choose happiness. happiness underneath it. And you know, Sarah Ahmed says that, like, um, she says this thing. She says that attributions of happiness might be how social norms and ideals become effective, as if the relative proximity to those norms and ideas create happiness. And like you know, the staggering thing about that Coca-Cola advert that I talk about is that it just seems to be that by attributing happiness to particular products, you can kind of make people happy, so that the, the, the so that the object triggers happiness. You know, and you know, there's nothing sophisticated about that at all. Actually, it's pretty dumb. You know, um, and I also, I, you know, I wonder whether that could work for artists. You know, to make yeah. <laughs> to, to be able to just you know to use that kind of mechanism um well they're like talisman you know they're, they're like it's like imbuing an object with a certain power or symbol of power um and of course we society is seemingly more sophisticated but per- perhaps it isn't to see through those you know those emblems really yeah 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 um but let's move on to Jeanette thomas who actually is probably someone that does try to uh, to uh, sort of underpin or rework those sort of mythological myth- myths and sort of views uh, but also just sing song as well. So there's a few overlaps here. Um, so in this one, essentially, we have a profile by Lauren Velvick on the work of Jeanette Thomas. Um, she has a book launch on the 21st of this month. Is that right? She does, yes. yes. On the um, 21st at Matt's Gallery in the afternoon. Yes. So, um, yeah, get over there for that. Uh, so we'll begin by talking about the, the latest work of hers. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that and then we'll go into more deeper sides of what her work's about? Yeah, okay. okay. Well, um, I suppose leading on from talking about the book launch, um, this latest work is The Unspeakable Freedom Device, which takes the form of a film along with 
or took the form of a film along with a sculptural installation. But Janet has also um, released a book that accompanies the film. So it um, kind of exists in various formats. And that was um, shown recently in Blackpool at the Grundy Art Gallery. And, and I think will be screened again during the launch at um, Matt's Gallery. So um, this film, it's, it looks at um, the... The, she calls it the afterburn on the public consciousness of the image of Margaret Thatcher, but more widely about the cultish kind of relationships that we have to politics and politicians. There's, it's, there's almost no way to talk about it without talking about the circumstances surrounding it as well, because it had been commissioned by the Grundy and Blackpool to be shown um, about 18 months ago. And yeah, just before the election, that's right. Yeah, yeah, just before the general election and had to be postponed because the council in Blackpool, who um, have some level of control over the gallery, decided that it could be seen to be influencing election results to show the film then. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary detail, this, where mm. they caught sight of the press release or some sort of interview where she spoke out against the current coalition... Yeah. And then it sort of whipped up into a sort of it's hysteria also, it's around... It's the use of Thatcher's yeah. image as well, yeah. I think, as well, that just... Um, I mean, it, it absolutely plays into the themes of the film as uh, thinking of Thatcher as a cult icon, yeah. that just using her image was too much to take. Like, it was... It is extraordinary, considering, <laughs> considering <laughs> she has been, you know, she's now dead and also, you know, she, lost, she was out of power from 92. Mm. So, uh, yeah, extraordinary, really, just... just think that she still has that sort of sway well, yeah, politically yeah interesting it's that, that um like what happens surrounding trying to get this exhibition shown plays into the work and it gave um janet thomas the opportunity to well as well kind of develop the um installation that um was shown alongside the film at the grundy but also to arrange a series of screenings around the country where alongside showing the film, there would be um, talks from different kind of thinkers and theorists. And these are an interesting addition to the film, really, because something about it is that it, it, it layers so many kind of significances and um, ideas, as well as like visual cues and um, like poetic devices to do with language. So by arranging these talks to coincide with screenings of the film, it gave an opportunity for various people to almost give a kind of individual response to it. Mm -hmm. And often they overlap, but it seems like with each one, um, before they started speaking, whoever it was would say, oh, and after I've watched it again, I've thought of a few more things I want to say, but I'll kind of have to stick with what I've written now. And it just um, kind of seems to build upon itself. Well, it's a very complex allegorical film in that, I mean, it's, it sort of depicts two female protagonists walking through a woodland yeah. uh, largely. Uh, and then that sort of intersperses with other elements that they come across through the sort of their walk through their sort of, it's like a pilgrim, really, a pilgrimage. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's quite a clear narrative whereby the two main characters, Glenda and Mary, who are an older and younger woman, yeah, they do. They go on a, a kind of pilgrimage and there's definitely elements of that, um, the idea of medieval pilgrimage, of mystery plays um, and also of the carnival or the fair that'll 
probably talk more about later. Um, and there, there's that that's obviously fictional, but they're moving towards the um, Winter Gardens mm. in Blackpool, which is where the actual Conservative conferences took place. So it kind of jolts or kind of muddles between very clearly something very allegorical and fictional and reality, things that have actually happened and things that are very familiar. Um, and another element that I think is um, really interesting about the film and it's also something that um, Thomas has used in their other films is, is looping. Mm-hmm. So this film isn't supposed to be watched on a loop. It's not a loop narrative, but there are elements of like looping and repetition in it whereby... Glenda, who is the first character that we meet and is the one who seems to sort of have control over the situation a bit. She's older and she seems to know what to do and she kind of tells Mary what to do a bit. At first, she's she's spat out from this um, kind of country hall-type place into the countryside. And then, again, later in the film, that's, that's kind of repeated, but she doesn't seem to be aware of that happening. Mm-hmm which is something that's quite interesting. Yeah, and there's obviously this biblical reference to the name Mary, plus that mm. she's carrying a baby that she yeah. can't... Well, she, she's keeping in a box. Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, so there's a number of sort of... <laughs> I mean, it, I think it's important to stress the kind of the odd, oddity and the sort of... You know, there is yeah. an oddity in this film. It's not, it's, not a, you know, it's not a straight film by any means. You know, there's, you know they're trading using coloured pebbles. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, there you know, are the, layers and layers yeah. of... There, of clues and cues that you can draw significance from as well as it being quite watchable as a story and having quite a catchy um, soundtrack as well that was um, composed by Leo Chadburn where um, Mary kind of repeats this refrain that ends with um, give me something that does everything and yet remains unseen Mm -hmm. which um, just from that you can draw a lot I think really and so it's, yeah. it's one of those it, you can you can watch it again and again and find something new in it each time and I think um, in that way it the ideas that it deals with to do with cultism and um, kind of a, a breaking apart of democracy and sort of people looking for um I guess solidity in their lives and something in places where they can't possibly find it are um, kind of dealt with in a, in a very like thick way that you probably can't get to like just through just through writing or just through talking. Yeah, I mean, you you, you kind of follow the sort of uh, frustrations and uh, you know you get the sense that the you know the, the characters of certain types of people you know that they don't have access to certain things, they don't have money. Uh, you know, they, yeah, it's a definite dystopian setting, um, and they're at a loss. You know, they, they you know, they're sort of out of society. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a transformative element at the very end because uh, they do take on a battle, so yeah. they they do have a fight. And I think you raised the the notion of color as well because the uh, the characters themselves, you know, they're either dressed in blue with blue face, face faces as well, or red. Or green, this RGB uh, structure yeah. that she uses, um, which she sort of uses as well as a sort of parallel to or to uh, yeah politics, and the sort of very narrow uh, sort of uh, 
uh, places that we can think about or view um, politics. You know, so either we are blue or red or green. Uh, you know, there's a very limited palette, and I think even one character actually addresses that and says, "There's more." You know, there's where if you add all those RGB together, you get, you know, everything white. You know, yeah. so there's a sense that the spectrum is perhaps being narrowed from our viewpoint. Um, That's a really interesting point in the film, actually. When, um, yeah, one of the characters tries to address the um, sort of blindness of the rest of the characters towards their being more colours and kind of stands up and shouts it and is kind of ignored as though she's a, a crank, basically. Yeah. And um, just they can't quite understand what she's saying to them because it's almost like that vocabulary isn't available to them. They only understand things in terms of IGB, which, of course, as well as being a um, kind of a metaphor for political affiliations, it also references technology. And so there's this idea of eternal blue, which, um, as well as relating to um, Thatcher and the blue of the Tory party and her blue suits and the idea of being under the same kind of political rule forever, it's also the blue of technology and the blue of, of standby. And there's something that um, in one of the talks given... Um, alongside the showing of this film in Blackpool by Esther Leslie, she points out that it's also the blue of restart, which is something that's quite important when thinking about the film because there's this idea of upgrading, of um, having a device or being a device and having to upgrade yourself or get it upgraded to save save yourself somehow. or um, That's what uh, the Mary character needs to do to get her baby to turn from mm. green to blue. <laughs> yeah, she just cuz she does she just use that word upgrade. I need my baby to change. Doesn't she just hold the yeah. baby aloft? I think she uh, wants to get this. her device upgraded. Yeah. And that somehow that will Yeah. Yeah, fix her fix baby her as child. well. Yeah. yeah. So um yeah, because I mean, I mean, beyond this particular piece, uh, she sort of Jeanette Thomas's work has kind of dealt, I think, largely with a sort of uh, how ideology fits alongside a kind of um, uh, polit- polit- politics, uh, mm-hmm. from education uh, through to yeah, in this case, more of a kind of almost religious and political fervor. Yeah, um, and how these, I feel that she sort of deals with it in a very abstract way, using very. Um, oblique technological references, objects that are kind of both arcane but modern. Uh, they sort of fit between both past and present. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk a little bit about how Jeanette sort of approaches material and how that sort of manifests in earlier works as well, like School of Change or School for Change? Yeah, um, I know that something she's interested in is the, the found object. And in there's definitely an element of chance towards bringing together what she uses to make her films. Um, so, for example, in School of Change, there's this... Um, again, it's it's a kind of layering, really, where there's the black and yellow of security tape along, like, over or alongside um, these kind of obsolete forms of technology like QR codes and mini-disc players... And then that's housed within this prefab school building. So often the work will be very, like, based in a particular place and it'll be built around that place. So in School of Change, the school building is actually where 
um, the artist went to school herself. But because it's the kind of prefab building it is, it's also the same as lots of other people's schools all mm. around the country. And then Yeah, I've got a distinct memory of being in a prefab. Yeah. I actually didn't <laughs> mind it. I mean, apart from the cold. I liked the way it was actually quite remote on a field. I remember that was my... <laughs> quite liked it. <laughs> Anyhow, sort of personal digression. Anyhow. <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of, in, in, in a way, the point I was making. Because yeah. in, in school of change, even, it's not, it, it is ominous. But it's maybe not quite as scary in parts as um, the unspeakable freedom device. But it definitely has that, um, because of the setting and because of the objects used, kind of does take you back to being at school and that kind of feeling. And that is a looped work, feeling of repeating. Mm. And it's that, um, that the kind of poetic devices used to make and script the film alongside the objects used in them kind of work together in a really reciprocal way. And then in the unspeakable freedom device where you have... um, So you've got the kind of rubbish little pram and the box that signifies, like, the child. Um, Painted stones that um, they... I guess they kind of bring up this idea of giving random pieces of metal or stone, like abstract meaning, you know, like money, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the handbag that Mary oh, yeah, carries the, around. That which holds, is a replica of the Margaret Thatcher yeah, bag. Of yeah, of course, yeah. that um, has a lot of significance. Mm. So certain objects have more or less significance or have more within the narrative or as something that you'll recognise as having significance from the real world. And there's kind of an interweaving. Yeah, she buys a sort of little Margaret Thatcher doll, mm. uh, which is a skeleton. Yeah, uh, it's <laughs> a, it's quite with a, a sort of Thomas Shutter-like sort of, uh, you know, waxed face. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not um, not a pleasant doll, but at the same time that you, you can get dolls of politicians, you can get dolls of almost anyone famous, and it is kind of in a way like a lot of things, almost like. It strikes me as a little bit of a joke because those dolls are uncanny and quite horrible looking and never quite look like who they're supposed to look like. And then the Margaret Thatcher one has this... The face, it looks like it's kind of like mauled out of wax, but it looks much more like a satirical cartoon of Thatcher Mm. than the actual person. Yeah, but it's held in a certain way, so it's given a sort of totemic-like status, mm. I think, in the in the construct of the narrative, oh, yeah. where she's holding it. It's sort of like it, it's all these things, although they're sort of quotidian, everyday, like throwaway or discardable things, they're given kind of almost you know immaculate power, you know, like sunglasses, etc. You know, they're sort of yeah. you know they're they're imbued with a sort of like a spiritual or any kind of you know uh, transcendent power. Yeah, <laughs> Which, and in the film, like this happens again and again with different objects, and I think. Um, that's something that's all about Janet's filmmaking where if it happened once I feel like it would kind of be okay I get that it's kind of a, it's a device it's a it's almost like like a, a play or like a there's word plays as well if they happened once that would be it but because they're layered up again and again it creates like a whole new kind of visual vocabulary of objects and what they mean mm-hmm. and she does the same thing with language as well so because um, it's film and it's this time-based medium and you become kind of absorbed and pulled along by the narrative. Um, as a viewer, you almost can't help but 
quite well almost quite easily fall into like admitting that those things could have that significance which then obviously throws into relief the kind of significance you give to things in real yeah. life <laughs> yeah and but certainly also the um the, the the fraudulent nature i think by which mm. we believe in things mm. and also that the power that they hold over us so i think she's sort of addressing how politics in many ways like these like from margaret thatcher mm. you know they are as much a kind of the the stones and the kind of the very you know, we, we are giving them a power and a status that they shouldn't have you oh, know yeah, she's absolutely. trying to overthrow them uh, i think through the work by collapsing a series of uh, associations and treating things as kind of just yeah discardable so it's, you know yeah and you know the- and definitely linking like the idea of the um like party conference with like the fair or the carnival and or um the kind of re- religious pilgrimage where pilgrims would like congregate at a church or a reliquary or something like that um and it's kind of i mean it's particularly poignant this idea of having particularly Tory party conferences in the north and it just strikes me that recently at the one in Manchester this hilarious point where some conservative party activists were waving pictures of Margaret Thatcher and the other activists were throwing eggs and that's completely carnivalesque Mm. and it's kind of yeah what's the return of the dead really (laughs) okay so just let's get uh, Jamie on for a moment here Uh, we'll talk we'll come back if we can to Lauren Uh, we'll talk about uh, Again, it's sort of a lot of the work sort of overlap, but we'll talk about Nathaniel Mellors and Marcus Wernerhead's recent film, The R&B Feeling, which sort of chronicles the work of Bob Parks, a less-known artist from California. Mm -hmm. Do you want to give just a a few insights onto Bob Parks? I don't think many people... Well, some people would know his work, but I I think a large amount of people will know his work. Yeah, there have been a couple of shows over the past few years. I think it's Sway Arts, which is now closed down. Um, one at Grand Union, curated by Janine McCochran Gard in 2013, I think, called um, And the Heavens Cried. Um, but Bob Parks is a, an artist, multidisciplinary artist in his late 60s, um, who met Nathaniel Mellors um, initially through a project that I think Nathaniel was working on at Matt's Gallery. Okay. And he needed some. Um, participants for a film project in which the participants would shout sort of maniacal dialogue. Okay. And Robin Klasnick apparently said, oh, I know just the guy, uh, this guy Bob Parks is, is, is perfect for it, and so put them in touch. And I think as a result of that, um, after the period of filming, Bob invited Nathaniel back to his bungalow in Sway, which is in the New Forest, and... Inside the bungalow was this kind of huge archive of material. I think uh, Nathaniel Muller's um, characterizes it as a sort of living artwork. It's this kind of thriving, um, kind of ever-evolving collection of personal artifacts that tie into this sort of expanding cosmology that he's 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 created. But um, the film works initially as an attempt to to sort of excavate Bob mm. as a as a kind of as a lesser-known character, as somebody whose practice has maybe been kind of marginalised or yeah. or forgotten. Um, and his his story is very interesting. I mean, he he studied art at Leicester College of Art throughout the, the tail end of the 1960s, um, before moving to Los Angeles, where he encountered this sort of emergent performance scene with Barbara T. Smith and Paul McCarthy, Chris Burden, John Duncan, who became a, an ally of sorts. Um, whilst he was there, he studied at the Lee Strasberg Institute. Um, developed a, a fairly idiosyncratic approach to acting. He starred in a Scorsese film as an extra, uh, hassled Robert De Niro on set. 
Um, he married, uh, was attempting to buy a plot of land in Santa Fe, I okay. think, and then his, his partner left him. And I think the result of that was this kind of, um, I guess, a kind of like personal sort of symbiotic psychosis, and that's how he refers to it, um, that resulted in this kind of excessive outpouring of um, cathartic work, really. Um, I mean, I think he was he was pretty much on that track initially, but this kind of pushed him into into a new a new period of of creativity. Um, How does it chart? Because I mean, that's interesting. So the work prior to that moment was it very different, or was it? I mean, was is it significant this sort of this moment where he? Uh... The, the film doesn't really go into that much detail about that kind okay. of shift. Um, I think he'd always been quite um, extrovert in his approach. I think his body had always been quite central to the way that he was thinking about um, producing. Um, he formed a painting group. I think they were just called the painting group in the uh, in the early 70s in LA, which was basically an attempt to bring the public into this act of collaborative painting. Yeah. So establishing a sense of improvised communal communality through um, asking people to splash paint around in a, in a kind of very disorganized way. Um, yeah, I just watched a clip of him um, just before I came here and watching him naked, painted him, you know, completely in yellow. yellow. Um, and, I, you know, because he, he's singing it, it was, you know, the singing this song, it's, it, it does have that sort of... Um, you know, sort of preacher gospel type mm, mm. Uh, approach, but he sort of undermines or circumvents it some way by being both out of breath, paint, painted yellow. And yes, yeah, so he breaks any sense that this has any kind of uh, yeah, meaning or power. It's kind of given a much more human and uh, kind of visceral, mm, mm. <laughs> in some ways, uh, approach to it. So it's it's refreshing. I mean, it's definitely refreshing work, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the sincerity is kind of, it's it's unsurpassable in yeah. a way. It's 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 really kind of um, quite sort of focused in its, in, its, in its attempt to be sort of earnest. Mm. Um, I mean, Morgan Quaintons reviewed the show at Grand Union um, a couple of years back and use this phrase, which I think initially seems kind of quite simple, but then like when you when you see the the documentary, it's it's really bang on. Mm. Um, and he just says that uh, Bob's work is just an exploration of personal liberty, and it, it's quite. I mean, as as a character, um, he's incredibly erudite um, and verbose and excitable, and there's this huge array of ideas and and kind of learning that's being directed through these kind of performative gestures that seem quite sort of confused and and chaotic, but everything comes down to this idea of personal freedom. Um, he's really dealing with some kind of complex ideas, I think. And at, at times, I, I don't know whether or not the the film that Marcus and, and Nathaniel have made really does justice to the complexity of those ideas. So um, for a start, he's talking about the body as a site, a kind of testing ground for um, sort of gnosis or kind of self-knowledge. Um, there's another element of his his practice, which is a kind of diagrammatic exploration of what he calls the the, the black aesthetic, um, which is the sustained interrogation of cultural appropriation, and who has the right to occupy what forms of subjectivity. And he's incredibly outspoken about a specifically white co-option of black suffering, mm -hmm. and this kind of stems from his time in South Central LA as a member of the congregation of a church called. Uh, the Church of let me just the Starlight it, Church of God Starlight in Christ. Church of God in Christ, yeah. yeah, which was an evangelical um, community that he belonged to. I think he was the only white member at the time, and 
whilst he was there, he was um, involved in um, giving kind of testimonies and recording music with a lot of the gospel musicians uh, who belonged to the community, um, which resulted in a record that Nathaniel Mullers put out through his record label, Junior Aspirin, a few years ago, called The R&B Feeling, All right. um, which is really worth picking up. Um, but that's a kind of composite of all of his thinking, and it's sort of... Uh, I guess like a, I guess like just a big, a big slab of of personal manifesto, in a way, and it's it's kind of very listenable, um, in terms raucous, but um, it really kind of digests a lot of a lot of the kind of conflicts at the heart of his his practice. And also, it's worth pointing out that one of the protagonists is almost his mother. I mean, she has a central part in to, this film totally. in many ways. Um, it actually, maybe even think of Whistler. I mean, in terms okay, of well, Whistler's, Whistler's mother. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is where, I mean, when I was writing the review, the review comes across, I think, in, in some ways as quite sort of naive. But I think the the film itself and Bob as a, as a practitioner um, occupies this position of, of totally admirable, and sort of politically just naivety. Like that's the thing that I found so kind of unusual about it. Um, but the film itself, th- there's a kind of weird turning point because the, the start of the film is essentially um, an unpacking of a biography. It, it sort of charts his trajectory, maybe his kind of failures, his return to London, well, Sway, the village of Sway in the New Forest, um, after this kind of personal crisis in LA. And so on the one hand, it kind of runs as this straight biopic, the turning point in the film um, stems from his relationship with his mother. And his mother is in her early 90s at the time of filming. She's incredibly frail. She's, she's suffering from illnesses. And she's actually killed in a, in a car crash in which Bob is the, mm. is the driver. So all of a sudden, there's this kind of turning point where the film shifts a gear. And... It becomes, in in some senses, like an, an emotional technology. That's the term I was kind of wrestling with, and I didn't know whether or not to use it to describe this one. But, um, you know, we're all familiar with the the kind of cinematic tropes that are used to kind of give us an emotional hook mm. into into a narrative. And I think where this film really succeeds and becomes something um, kind of quite original is the way that the film just gives absolute kind of precedence to this sort of emotional exploration in the immediate aftermath of, of tragedy. So it follows Bob through this um, series of ritualistic articulations of, of grief. And it moves from something that's um, maybe kind of clinically distanced, you know, critically yeah. distanced, into something that has a different um, kind of emotional register. Um, and it gives him a sort of space to move that I haven't really seen in any other films of, of the kind. I mean, I, I was sort of thinking initially of, um, you know, someone like Ben Rivers, who um, has a practice that is a sustained attempt to excavate alternate yeah. modes of, of creativity, um, alternate modes of living. Um, I thought also of Jeremy Deller and uh, Nicholas oh, yeah. Abraham's The Bruce Lacey Experience. Um, but I think those films um, maintain to the end this kind of critical distance, whereas this does something that's... Um, Slightly more ambitious, I think. Yeah. Also, I suppose that obviously it was an unexpected uh, event. Mm, uh, mm. You know, the death of his mother, and his then response to that. Also, I guess what's interesting, I've not seen the film, so I can't really comment. It's hard. Um, I would say my only instant thought would be how they've managed not to feel like it's exploitative or invasive on some level. Uh, not that necessarily it has to be, but 
um, you know, it's sort of how, how do you demonstrate or show someone's process of mourning and grief without it be turning into something that feels invasive on some level? Yeah, I, I, I think, I, I guess that's sort of short-circuited um, in a sense by the complicity of Bob's mother in terms of his, his practice. Mm. And his practice is entirely autobiographical. You know, it stems from his body as the site of experience of um, religious rapture. Um, and his mother occupies this position as, as muse. Mm. Uh, so he's his mother's carer, but he also presents his artistic ideas, some of which are, are kind of sexually transgressive, to his mother as, as a sort of sounding board to get this kind of critical relay going. And so I think that with the death of his mother, it's um, it's an attempt for that or an opportunity for that uh, relationship to kind of take its its sort of logical course. I mean, there, there's a, a kind of process of re-editing going on at the, at the moment with the film before it's it's sort of aired on the BBC in in 2016. But there's a scene where uh, Marjorie Parks is sat in in a bedroom, and Bob puts on the Solomon Burke record. Solomon Burke mm. was was one of the, the kind of founders of the the, the sort of soul movement. Um, and the song is, the change is going to come. And so there's this sense, this sort of lyrical invocation of, of a kind of, you know, schism going to occur yeah. in, in their lives in some way. And she's quite sort of introspective. She's just kind of sat there on the bed. And this song starts to, starts to play. And Bob comes over and gives her a, a cuddly toy. And she sort of takes it and starts to kind of caress it. And all of a sudden, she's sort of... Um, I don't know, like animated by this 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 artificial object, and then uh, he kind of walks off 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 um, out of shot, comes back with another cuddly toy, which is this seal, and gives it to her, and she she's sort of even more animated. She becomes kind of more right. pronounced in her mannerisms, and it just keeps going on. He just keeps piling these toys on her. The, the more toys he piles on, it's almost like the more love he just kind of directs it, you know, towards yeah. her, the more kind of responsive she becomes, and so there's always, I think, from the start of the film. Until the end, you get this sense of a real interplay between their their characters and um, a sense of reciprocal care, also a sense of reciprocal confrontation. Um, that he's he's kind of also put her through some very difficult. You and know, does she ever confront him? Is it is it just one way, or is it does she ever come back at him with frustration, or is it just that she's always this much more? Um, I think uh, she's incredibly receptive. incredibly yeah. tolerant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's, uh, I mean, there are stories of him. Um, uh, there's a clo- close radio, which was a show that I think Paul McCarthy, Chris Burden, and John Duncan um, co-hosted in LA. I think the initial, <laughs> the initial kind of radio broadcast that they made with Bob was him in- inserting a dildo into oh, himself hey. um, whilst on the phone to his mother back in England and describing in meticulous detail <laughs> what was going on. And so <laughs> I don't know what the result of that was, whether or not the, the receiver dropped to the floor and she, you know, or whether or not she was, you know, encouraging him even then, telling him that whatever he did was fine. But, um, yeah, the, the relationship between the two is incredibly complex. And I, I think it's something the film does um, a kind of real justice to in terms of its, its sort of representation of that. And him as a performer, so let's, I mean, outside of that, in terms of more of an art historical context, mm-hmm. so like him working with Barbara T. or being part of, let's say, Barbara T. Smith at that time, Chris Burden, etc. Do you think, in a way, that sort of extremity of the body and that, did that inform a lot of his practice back then, or was it... Yeah, I think, I think there was a kind of healthy dialogue mm. going on. Um, 
Paul McCarthy sort of legendarily called him naive when he came right. to visit him at his, at his bungalow. Um, so, yeah, because the trailer sort of starts with him, you know, this avant-garde pioneer, and then ends up back at home, back in this domestic sort of uh, suburban world. Yeah, so it just plays mm, on mm. that sort of... Uh, well, something that isn't really mentioned in the film, which which for me was a real hook, um, is the location itself, Sway, which is this tiny sort of nondescript uh, New Forest village, which I, I don't know if anyone's read read the book um, England's Lost Eden by Philip Hoare, which was, was an attempt to kind of map this um, em- emigration of um, convulsionist... Uh, ecstatic Christians from London to find a new kind of Victorian sanctuary um, in in this kind of uh, rural idyll. And the protagonist in this story is Marianne Gerling, who was the kind of, I guess, the the head of the Woolworth Road Shakers. And they were, they were deemed a kind of, um, a, like a sort of heretical or insurrectionary sect in London at the time. And Sway is the village that they settled in and established this kind of huge utopian community. And they were celibate, so they, they died out. But whilst they were there, they did some incredible things. They channeled the spirit of Sir Christopher Wren. And as a result of that, he gave them the plans to build uh, what's known as Peterson's Tower, which is the, at the time was the, the tallest structure in the world, made of a, a kind of revolutionary form of cast concrete. Um, but they were kind of, I guess, known for their convulsionist tendencies. They were, I guess, the sort of British answer to the Shaker movement. And by some sort of serendipitous turn of uh, sort of chance or fate, Bob, who has this kind of emulated epileptic fit as the central component of his performance practice, yeah. finds himself there, you know, a hundred years later or so, um, and uh, is kind of occupying the same or, or sort of channeling this same sense of, of religious rapture or, or kind of personal rapture through bodily contortion. Um, so I guess the video you saw is him painted yeah. yellow and yeah. then just That's right. going yeah. a bit crazy. Yeah. yeah, and he also, I mean, you're right. I mean, in terms of his, part of his practice as well is painting and, you know, he's a, it's a manifest in lots of different ways, his work. It's not just performance, is it? It's, it's across different works, uh, different kinds of works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wondered uh, if we could bring... Can I ask about the yeah. return? Because there was a return to... Los Angeles, right, in the in the film, is that right? And yes, did he take his yeah. mother with him? And I mean, how is he received by no, he, his peer group? He, um, well, that's the thing that he he kind of drops off the map, really. So that's why the film is this sort of excavation of of Bob Parks as a as a figure, because from the seventies, where he'd he'd achieved this um, notoriety in Los Angeles, he kind of moves home and fits quite sort of comfortably into this suburban lifestyle, and he becomes a postman, he becomes a teacher. Um, he sort of drops all of the um, kind of ecstatic public actions that he'd maintained for a while whilst he's in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he continues being an artist and then the house becomes saturated with this this kind of material, this glut of material that just, you know, extends from skirting board to ceiling, really. <laughs> I, I mean, there's, there's an interesting relation here to his... Um, the, the, the film's relation to the kind of... Uh, Canonization, perhaps, of Bob Parks that that puts me in mind of Ben Rivers's recent film about um, Rose Wiley, who actually probably mm, doesn't need mm. much help in being canonized. But I wonder, I wonder how the the directors of this film uh, how they feel, if you know, about their role as kind of bringing Parks into visibility and his, you know, his relation to art history. Yeah, I, I think. Um 
It's a it's an unusual one. I think there's there's never been a sense. I, I think for Nathaniel Mellers, I know sort of. Sp- I guess sort of speaking for him, but I got, got the impression that there's never been a sense that Bob was someone who ne- needed to be rescued. You know, like it, it, mm. there's. I think the thing that underscores their relationship is one of mutual respect. It's like a, um, you're doing something that's genuinely interesting to me. Therefore, I want to dedicate some of my time mm. and practice to an exploration of your ideas and your practice. And when Nathaniel Mellers had his um, show at the ICA a few years back, he incorporated one of Bob's paintings which is this kind of uh, altarpiece it was a, a sort of ra- a garish rainbow rendition of his of his mother crucified um but then they also they also share i was thinking this earlier they also share this kind of healthy interest in the scatological yeah. um so <laughs> maybe that's the kind of the point of entry lauren do you have any thoughts about um Pop parks or uh, other kind of performance <laughs> practices. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I mean, if anything, I think there's there's the point of celebrity in the collecting of objects, yeah. definitely, because that's something that um, obviously, like the artist I've been writing about, Janet Thomas, her films are f- fictional in a way, but feature objects collected from, where <clears throat> um, else could they be collected from? But from reality. Yeah. Um, which are in some way, yeah, altered, fictionalised, like painted differently, coloured differently, to be kind of um, mm. like transported through some kind of portal into the world of the films. But um, so I don't know, maybe it's that kind of sharing of the collecting of material, I suppose, but in, yeah. uh, in a on a different scale, I imagine. Well, let's uh, start wrapping things up. I know. Um uh, Jamie has a performance on the 21st of November at IMT. Uh, do go see that. Um, and Jonathan, you have a, you're part of a book launch. Well, you're actually you're a contributor to the David Asbolderston uh, book launch, which is also at Matt's Gallery. That's mm. this Thursday. That's uh, Wednesday. Oh, sorry, Wednesday. Yeah, from 7 o'clock. Uh, from 7 o'clock. And uh, as we've mentioned earlier, Jeanette Thomas has a screening on the same day, 21st of November uh, in the afternoon, so you could make a day of it. Um, anyway, that leads me to say a great thank you to both Jonathan P. Watts, Jimmy Sutcliffe, and uh, Lauren Velvet for joining me today. I'm Chris McCormack, and many thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>